before we start, uh, perhaps it's a good time just to remind us how helpful it is to have the, the Bible open in front of you while, while we're doing this. My personal preference is to have a physical uh, paper Bible. It's easier to follow along in that, and I'll be flicking around a little bit, and so if you can follow with me, that'll be helpful. Whether it's your own Bible that you bring from home or one that you grab from the shelf on the way in, it really does help to be able to follow along as we look at this together. But let's pray again as we come to this part of God's Word. Heavenly Father, we do ask that as we look at this now, you will help us to have the kind of certainty about Jesus that Luke intends for us uh, and that it will uh, strengthen us and encourage us and, and, and fill us with confidence uh, in whatever circumstance and moment that we're in. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Can I have certainty about Jesus? Can I have certainty about the things of Jesus? That seems like an important question to to want to answer, doesn't it? I mean, there are some things in life that are just so important that it matters if it's true. It matters that we can be confident about it, right? And, And I hope it goes without saying, but I'm going to say it anyway, that the message of Jesus is one of those things. Yeah, in recent times, there has been a bit of a shift away from caring so much about whether something is true and a bit more towards caring about whether something works for me. You know, is this going to fit my lifestyle? Can I, can I work with this? Can I live this kind of way? And you know, there's something in that. We, 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 we want to be able to live a, a particular way that we think is, is true and right, and, and I think we do over time, and I try and help us to see that what, the way that God tells us to live fits with our experience of life. That's, that's the case. But even before that and deeper than that, it really matters if it's true, right? You know, the claims about Jesus are so massive, so significant. Doesn't it matter? Shouldn't we try hard to make sure that we can be confident and certain that it's true? I mean, think about it. This message that, that a man who lived 2,000 years ago in a part of the world that is otherwise unremarkable and forgettable, that he began to create ripples amongst the people around him and then waves throughout the country and then a tsunami that spread across the world. And the reason that this man caused such a stir was because people were saying that this is not just a man, but in fact he is God in the flesh. And that this man didn't just come to teach people a better way to live, although he did that, but that he came to fix something that was otherwise so broken that we could do nothing about it. That is the relationship between God and people, between God and us. And that it was broken because of us. That says something profound and profoundly unsettling about ourselves, right? About our brokenness about the the state, the condition of our hearts and our minds and our lives. And it also says something remarkable about God, that he would love us anyway, that he would take you from wherever you are and that he would draw you to himself in love and forgiveness and restoration, all because of this man, Jesus. And that because of this, Jesus is someone who cannot be ignored that he is God's answer to all of human history and to the future of humanity and, in fact, of eternity, the world. And and I'm just scratching the surface there, but if that even begins to describe the significance of Jesus, 
then don't we owe it to ourselves? Doesn't it matter to know that it's true? To know that it really is true? Well, Luke certainly thinks that's the case. And it was with that very thought and purpose that, in fact, he set out to write this account of Jesus' life, what we have just begun reading, what we call Luke's Gospel, the account of the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. Have a listen to Luke's purpose for writing it. You can see it from the middle of verse 3 down to verse 4. Luke says, I decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. I've decided to write an orderly account so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. That's the express purpose of Luke as he writes this, to know the certainty of the things you've been taught about Jesus. He's writing to this guy named Theophilus. We otherwise don't know much at all about Theophilus. But he clearly has heard these massive claims about Jesus and Luke wants Theophilus to know to have confidence that these things are true. And what he writes for Theophilus can do the same for us as well. As I said, we don't know much else about Theophilus. We don't know whether he's himself a believer or whether he's just come to hear these stories about Jesus and is still thinking about it. And in that sense, what Luke has written is helpful for us wherever we come to thinking about Jesus, whether we are someone who believes these things and, and want to be able to have some certainty and confidence that it's true or whether we're still thinking about it and not sure whether we believe it. It works for both situations. And so wherever we're at, that's Luke's purpose, that we can know the certainty of these things about Jesus. And so that's what we're going to be looking at over the next term. And as we look at just the start of it today, there, there are two things that I want us to note about what Luke has written that I think help to serve his purpose. And, and they are that what he's written is a carefully investigated account. It's carefully investigated. And the other, which we'll come to a bit later on, is that it's purposeful. It's a purposeful account. So let's begin with that first point, that it's carefully investigated. Yeah, a lot of people assume it seems to me, that the Bible and the things that we hear about Jesus are just, at worst, the stuff of myths and fairy tales. You know, it belongs in that kind of category. Or even at best, that they're exaggerated stories that grew over time through, you know, like Chinese whispers. You know, that game that you play, we used to play it at youth group where one person whispers in the ear of someone and then they whisper in the next person's ear and then they whisper in the next person's ear and you go down the line and eventually you compare what ended up to what started and you have a laugh about how different and crazy it was. That's what some people think has happened with the message of Jesus, as if there was this long time and and big gap between what happened and the people who saw it and then that spreading through lots of stories around the campfire, so to speak, from person to person to person, so that you've gone over time from what began maybe as there was this guy who was called Jesus, he was a good bloke and he said some interesting things to Jesus is God in the flesh and he died and rose to life again. A big difference. A lot of people just assume that that's what happened, the changing of the story over time with no actual connection to, to history and the people who actually saw it. Problem is that idea just doesn't hold up at any level and it's certainly the opposite of what Luke is setting out to do here. Have have a, a listen with me again 
to what Luke says he's doing. I'm going to read that whole first paragraph from verse 1 to verse 4. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Notice what he says there. This is not generations later. This is not the end of a long string of rumours. Have a think about it. What is it that you most need to determine the, the truthfulness, the facts of something that happened? You need eyewitnesses, right? You need people who were there and who saw it. And that's what Luke says he's done. He's spoken to the eyewitnesses. He's gone back to the eyewitnesses and he's carefully investigated all these things from the beginning and so he's put together an orderly account of what he has discovered. One writer has described what Luke has done as as being like a traveller who's followed a stream, a river, right back to its source to see where it's come from and then worked with it right back from the beginning. That's like what Luke has done there and he's done that for Theophilus and as a result for us so that we can know right from the beginning that what we have been taught about this is true and certain. There was no gap between eyewitnesses and what Luke is writing, and the same goes for the other Gospels and the rest of the New Testament of the four Gospels. Two of them were written by the eyewitnesses, Matthew and John, and the other two, Mark and Luke, were written by people who were companions of the eyewitnesses. And they did the research. And Luke, in particular, is very open about his methods. He says, I've carefully investigated from the beginning, from the eyewitnesses, and put together this orderly, historical account of what happened. And so, have a look with me briefly. That as he writes, you see markers of history in what he writes. They kind of put pegs in the ground as anchor points for the history of what he's writing. And particularly, I want to point out some, some areas where he, 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 he locates what he's writing in place and time, and so that he's connecting them with external and tangible, verifiable anchor points, moments in history. So down in verse 5, he says, In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. It locates it in place and time. Or again, over two pages in my Bible in chapter 3 and verse 1. Chapter 3, verse 1. Love to hear the pages turning. Great. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Eritrea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the time of the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, That's when the word of the Lord came to John. You see, he's locating it in place and time because he's writing history. Luke was a careful investigator, an investigative historian. Uh, Just recently I heard a quote from a professor of history from King's College in London, one of the top-ranked universities, research universities in the world, and she was asked does she as a historian treat Luke's gospel as history? And she said, yes. 
And then, as only an academic would, she kind of expressed it like this. She said, Luke's writing conforms to the structure of authentic, authentic historical writing. And then she gave her reasons. He's careful to distinguish between what he learned from others and what he witnessed himself. We see that as we read it. He's careful to locate events in specific times and places, as I just mentioned. He writes with a professed purpose to inform his own and later generations. And she concludes, these are the characteristics that historians look for in historical writings. This is history. And and you may be aware that over the years, some historians have tried to discredit the, the historical reliability of the things that are written in the Gospels. So, for example, you might be aware that in the Gospel stories there are pools in Jerusalem where Jesus is said to have done some of his miracles, the Pool of Bethesda and the Pool of Siloam. And archaeologists and historians have said, sorry, we've excavated Jerusalem and we've just not found those pools, that they don't exist. And so there's embellishment here and, and by implication, the miracles that are said to have happened there didn't happen. And then in 1964, they did some more excavations and they found the Pool of Bethesda. Whoops, there it is. And then in 2004, not, not even that long ago, but 17 years ago, they found the Pool of Siloam. They were doing some, some earthworks to, to do a sewerage system and they, they came across the Pool of Siloam and the archaeologist said, hang on, stop, you can't dig that anymore. We, we need to look at this and we think we have trouble with a 181-year-old building. Imagine trying to do building works where there's thousands of year old things. But they found the Pool of Siloam. And those are just two examples and maybe fairly dry for some of us. I, you know, some people's eyes glaze over when we talk about this kind of thing. Other people get excited and want to hear more and, and I could talk about this all day. And there are books and books written about this kind of thing. But the point that I want us to see is that this is reliable historical information and it's important for us to know that because what it talks about, the message of Jesus, is just so significant. And so Luke wants us to know the certainty of these things we have been taught. That's the first point that I want to make. This was a carefully investigated account. And the second point is that it's a purposeful account. That is, Luke hasn't just kind of gathered together all the scraps of information that he could find and thrown them on the floor in front of Theophilus and said, well, make of that what you want. No, he's compiled the evidence in a meaningful way. And again, you see that in verse 3 where he says, I've written an orderly account. And he doesn't necessarily mean in chronological order, but that he's put things together in a way that will help Theophilus and us to understand what has happened. And that's what historians do. That's what journalists do. They put the eyewitness quotes and the other evidence together in a way that helps to make sense of what happened. And the key bit, really, I think, to help us to understand what Luke is going to be doing for us is that one word in verse 1, fulfilled. The things that have been fulfilled among us. See, Luke's plan is to to show us how this story of Jesus is the fulfilment of expectations, in fact, of prophecies that have been made in the past by God. And, in fact, that word, 
fulfillment, fulfilled, comes up again at the very end of Luke's Gospel in chapter 24, the last chapter, this time on the lips of Jesus. That after Jesus died and rose to life again and was explaining what had happened to his apostles, who were the eyewitnesses who would tell others, he said this, and we've got this on the screen, I think, the next slide there. He said this. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. See, Luke is saying what Jesus himself said, that the events of Jesus didn't just happen in a vacuum. This is the fulfilment of promises that God had made in times past and that that is going to help Theophilus, understanding that is going to help Theophilus to know the certainty and the significance of these things that have been taught. And so what I want to do now in our remaining time is just to skim through the rest of the section that we're looking at today, the the announcement of the birth of these two children, to see how Luke is starting to show what's coming ahead. And the first thing that I think we notice is how the story begins with what I like to call Old Testament vibes. It kind of has the ring of things that happened in the Old Testament, and particularly the old couple who can't have children. That, that is so common in the Old Testament, that kind of private, private grief that's so public at the same time. We, we think of uh, Abraham and Sarah, right? We think of Hannah, Samuel's mother, who we've just been looking at. We think of Samson's parents, and that the child that would be born to them miraculously by the announcement of God or his angel would then become significant in this great thing that God is about to do. And it kind of sets off at least some expectations for us that this is happening again. After so long, now this is starting to happen again. God is about to do something great through this child that's about to be born. And then it gets even more explicit when the angel Gabriel speaks to the priest Zechariah what he does is he quotes from the very last words of the Old Testament to describe what this child John will do. Have a look at what he says in verse 16 and 17 of chapter, chapter 1. This child, he will, bring many, he will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. As I said that Gabriel there is quoting from the last verses of the Old Testament, which left this kind of open-ended expectation that God was going to do a great thing in the future. And it would start with a new prophet like the great prophet Elijah, who would turn people back to God in preparation for the coming of the Lord. And Gabriel says, that's who this child will be. This child will be that great prophet. And for anyone who knows their Old Testament and is reading this, it should kind of begin to give some goosebumps that after so long, God is now starting to do this great thing, this highly anticipated thing. And it's beginning with this child, John. But even then, as we read on, it turns out that John is just the signpost, the finger pointing to the real thing that God is going to be doing, which brings us to the second child, whose birth is being announced. Not from an old couple who can't have children this time, but from a young woman who shouldn't be able to have children because she's a virgin. 
And now it's not Christmas, but I suspect that as we read this bit, it kind of reminds us of those stories that we become so familiar with at Christmas, you know, the angel Gabriel going to visit Mary and maybe even some of the Old Testament prophecies that go with this birth announcement, like how 700 years earlier, Israel and their kings were in dire straits. It was a bad situation, but God promised a future where he would raise up a new king, a forever king, who would be a descendant of the great King David, who we've just read about in our other Bible reading, who would rule over a kingdom that would never end. And the prophet Isaiah at that time prophesied about this coming king. And it says this in Isaiah 7 verse 14. The Lord himself will give you a sign, that is when this will happen. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, that is God with us. And the angel Gabriel is telling Mary, and we get to find out along the way, that this is that moment. The child that you will bear is that great king, and you are to call him Jesus. And the rest of Luke's orderly account of the life of Jesus is now showing Theophilus and us how Jesus fulfills those hopes and expectations, those prophecies and promises that have been around for so very long. And it's not until we get to the end of Luke's gospel that we really find the whole picture and get the answer of that because it is somewhat of an unexpected outcome in the end. But that's where we're headed. That's where Luke's gospel is going. And that's the journey that we're going to be going through as we read it together. And as I said, it will take a while and we're going to do it in sections, but don't feel that you have to wait. You can read ahead. And we will get clues along the way as to where it's heading. And so what I want to do is I want to invite you to get invested in this journey. It'll take us through term two this year, but then we'll come back to it next year. Get invested in what Luke is doing for us. He wants us to know the certainty of these things that we have been taught. What happened and what it means, why why it matters. He wants us to understand that this is real history and that this moment in history has changed history. And, And not just history, but eternity. And why it matters for you and for me. And and can I say, and just take this moment to kind of impress upon us, that this is so important for every single one of us individually, that we have this same goal for ourselves that, that Luke had for Theophilus, that we can know the certainty of these things, that, that we should want to be able to, to know that for ourselves. Now, we're not all archaeologists or historians or experts in ancient historical literature. We're not all theologians or philosophers but we can and should know that we can believe that this is true, that we can rely on it, that it matters, what it means. That is, we need to be able to have this personal conviction and independence of faith that is not outsourced to the people around me or or to the church that I go to. You know, some people I I come across, it seems to me that they kind of function on this way of thinking, I go to a church that believes these things and so I subscribe to that, I tick that box. Like, you know, faith by association, you, you might call that. that. That's not 
what we need. That's not a recipe for a lasting, persevering, growing faith. We need to hold on to the the truth of this ourselves, each one of us. And and it reminds us of of a story that I've shared before, and I'll share it again because it's got so many aspects to it, but of an older Christian friend of mine was telling me about some advice that he gave to a young Christian man as he was moving away to go and work in the country. And he said to this young man, he said, make sure that your faith is not dependent on anyone else. Make sure your faith is not dependent on anyone else. And and I remember when I first heard that, thinking, is that good advice? I don't know if that's good advice. Because I was thinking, you know, we're not meant to be on our own in our faith. We're made to do faith together. We're not meant to be lone rangers in faith. That's not how God has made us. That's not God's purpose for us. And we're going to come back to that next term when we look at the topic of church. But that's not what my friend meant. What he meant was make sure that you're well established in your faith so that it won't dissolve and, 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 and kind of disappear when you face the challenges of life and when you find yourself disconnected from your support network and from you know, the people around you who also believe or when life gets hard and when doubts arise, that at your core you have a personal faith that you're convicted that this message of Jesus is true and that it matters, that you're convinced of that. That's what he meant. And and that is so important for every single one of us. We can know the certainty about about Jesus. We can have confidence that, that what we know is true and reliable and we should make it our goal to have that confidence and to grow in that confidence and, do, and to do the things that, we, that will help in that regard, to be reading the Bible for ourselves. Like I've said, read Luke's Gospel. If you don't have a Bible, grab there's Luke's Gospel and a whole separate thing out there, the essential Jesus, grab one of them on your way out. Be hearing it in church. Be discussing it with others in Bible study. All these things can help to grow us in our assurance and our confidence of what we believe. Now, that doesn't mean that if we do these things, we will never have any doubts, any moments of uncertainty and doubt. That that is normal for the life of faith. And in fact, because that's normal for the life of faith, it makes it all the more important to have this secure. When we're finding living the Christian life becoming difficult, when the choices that we make because we follow Jesus, it makes life hard and we feel the cost of it. When we find our friends going a different way and we find that appealing and we don't want to get left out of that. Or when I'm facing temptations and and I'm tempted to throw in the towel. Or when I'm confronted by my own mortality and it's scary and fears arise. Those things all happen around us and they raise doubts and fears and concerns. They fuel doubt. Because those things happen, that's when it's all the more helpful and necessary to know that these things are true, to be able to kind of have it on on your shelf or in the back of your mind, to, to know, come back to these things and go, actually, yes, despite all these things, I know that this is true. So that they can speak words of encouragement and strengthening into those times of doubt and fear and discouragement and temptation. That's what we need. 
Let, let this confidence be the foundation that you can hold on to in those moments so that you can live the life of faith with confidence and trust because, as Luke has set out to do, we know the certainty of the things that we have been taught about Jesus. Let me pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, you know the messages that we hear around us, um, from the world around us about Jesus Uh, some from friends, some from media, some from other places that want to raise doubts for us. You know the things in our own hearts and minds and lives that raise doubts and fears and worries for us. And so, Father, we ask that you help each one of us to know the certainty of the things that we have been taught about Jesus and to commit ourselves to growing in this certainty and confidence so that we can trust right through those moments, so that we can have a faith that grows and perseveres. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.